Good morning, everyone. It is so wonderful to see you. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, yesterday to share a little bit uh, more about my history. You heard how I became a Christian. I became a Christian because someone showed me a rapture film when I was five years old, and I didn't want to get my head cut off. So I ran forward, gave my heart to the Lord. Uh, that was the first movie I ever saw in my life. So I started with horror films, because every rapture movie is a horror film, let's be honest. Um, I, uh, which, which, and I, I stress this because on the one hand, I want us to really get one thing out of this week. The book of Revelation is not a horror film. The book of Revelation is a romance. And I want us to make sure we get this straight as we're reading this. It is about the one who loves us and fights for us. That's what the book of Revelation is about. So, uh, that was my first film. I didn't see movies because my parents weren't sure that if I went that I would be ready for the rapture. And so we didn't go to films when I was a kid. And then one day, something happened. We had an associate pastor, my mom and dad were the pastors. We had an associate pastor who didn't feel the same way about movies. He let his kids go to a film, his kids invited me. And now my parents had a political situation. Because if they say I can't go, they're saying the associate pastor shouldn't let his kids go. So what their way of solving it was they said I could go, just don't publicize that I have gone. And we will hope the rapture doesn't happen while I'm there. So the first film I ever saw in a theater was Return of the Jedi. How many of you remember when Return of the Jedi came out? This is, that's that we just all dated ourselves. This, this is the time when the big cultural question was, is Darth Vader the father of Luke Skywalker? He says it at the end of Empire Strikes Back. It is two years before we get to the Return of the Jedi. This is pre-internet. There are no spoilers. You don't actually know what the answer is going to be. I mean, I remember as a kid, it was on the news. Is Darth Vader the father? I mean, it was a big deal. We didn't have a lot going on in the world back then. It was a big deal. My town in Kentucky only had one movie theater, and they only showed movies twice a day. They showed it at 6, and they showed it at 9. We went to see Return of the Jedi at 6 o'clock on opening night. I watched the film. I come out. Now, you need to remember... There are people standing in line wrapped around the theater to get to the 9 o'clock showing, but it is the first showing. I'm coming out. It's the first night. I've seen it. They're standing in line. I don't really know how this is supposed to work. I don't know the decorum. It's my first film. So as we're walking by the line, I'm a 10-year-old boy who's trying to work out what I just saw, and I say as loudly as I would say it, so Darth Vader really was Luke Skywalker's father? And I ruin the movie for everyone in line, at which point some of these Kentuckians let me know what I had done, and my friends had to rush me to the car and get me out of the parking lot. Now, when we read Revelation, in one sense, we are getting spoilers. We are getting a sense 
that this is God's plan, this is God's, what he's going to do. But in another sense, we're not just getting spoilers, we're also being told about our lives right now. And what I mean by that is this. How many know that Jesus says, Matthew 24, no one knows the day nor the hour. Not even the Son, but only the Father. Why? Because when Jesus comes for his church, that will be the Father's call alone. It's the Father who says go. Jesus says, no one knows, I don't know. How many know if Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return, we don't know when he's going to return? If Jesus doesn't know, do you know who else doesn't know? Satan doesn't know. And if Satan doesn't know, Satan doesn't know who the Antichrist is. And if Satan doesn't know who the Antichrist is, we don't know who the Antichrist is. Everyone still with me? So in every generation, the enemy is getting ready for the time when the restraint against him will be removed. In every generation, you have little antichrists that are there, that are being restrained from the full effect of a tribulation, but they are already at work. How many of you know that we could start naming historical figures and you could say, well, they were a kind of antichrist, right? How many know that in every generation the church is being persecuted? How many know in every generation we have a witness to give to God that is no less than the witness that we read here in the book of Revelation? We don't know when, but in every generation we're living a preview of the end. In every generation the world is still hostile. In every generation Satan is still pushing lawlessness. In every generation the church still has a witness. And the book of Revelation is written to us not just to give us spoilers, but to prepare us for the lives we're living now. Does that make sense? Because we're living the preview of what's to come. So what have we read thus far as we read the book of Revelation? We read about John, a man who is persecuted, a man who is writing to churches that are undergoing persecution. You say to a first century Christian, when do you think church is going to be persecuted? And they're like, about five years ago? They're undergoing persecution now. And he says to them, I was on the Isle of Patmos, and I had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus has a word to the church. And his word to the church is, I want you to work. I want you to stay faithful. I want you to stay pure. And then I'm caught up to the third heaven. I'm caught up to the throne room of God, and I see a throne in which there is a lamb that looks like it's slain, and only he has the authority to open the scroll to unveil history. And from this point on, we have a series of judgments that grow in escalation. You have five or seven seals in which by the end a third or a fourth of humanity is killed. Then you have seven trumpets. By the end, a third of humanity is killed. Then you have seven thunders. We're not even told what the seven thunders say, but what's the expectation? If a fourth was killed and then a third was killed, it's going to be a half. And then finally today, we're going to come to seven bowls. And now it's everybody. These judgments are escalating. But in the meantime, as he's given us this story of these increasing judgments of God, judgments, not because God is trying to destroy, but because God is trying to save. 
I said this before, the book of Revelation is not about the judgment of the world alone. What it's about is the vindication of the church. It's about God saying, you were right. You've been persecuted and I'm going to bring justice. So we read about these two communities that are brought up again and again. One, a community that follows a dragon. A dragon who raises a beast. A beast who becomes an object of worship. And eventually this community receives a mark from this beast. A mark that he tells us represents 666, which in one sense just means it's incomplete. We're going to say earlier that this other community, 144,000, that's every nation, tribe, people, language, tongue. They're also sealed. They're sealed by the name of God. And the question is, what name do you have on you? Do you have the name of God which is complete? Or do you have the name of the beast which is incomplete? Because the lesson we're going to get throughout this is the beast will never be enough. Only God's enough. Only God's the center. Only Jesus is the key. Whatever the enemy offers the world is an object of worship. However we want to be identified, however we want to be marked, it will never be enough. We have one community that worships the beast, and again, the language is given. The beast is making a spectacle of every tribe, people, nation, language, and tongue. We have another community represented as 144,000, a completeness of God's people, and every tribe, people, nation, tongue. We're going after the same groups here. One follows the lamb, and they have his mark. One follows the beast, and they have his mark. And as we come now to Revelation chapter 15, we come back again to this 144,000. They make an appearance after the opening of the seals. They make an appearance in the middle of the trumpets. Now they make an appearance again at the bowls of wrath. And we're told that they're holding harps, and they're singing a song of Moses and the Lamb. Now, if you talk about the song of Moses, everyone hearing this understands what you mean because when God delivered Israel from the Exodus, Moses and Miriam led them into song. He praised God for his judgments against Egypt. So why is it the song of Moses and the Lamb? Because just as Moses led people out of slavery, Jesus has freed us from the slavery of sin. But here's the thing we sometimes miss about the Exodus. God gave his judgment to Egypt, but even in his judgment there was mercy because according to Exodus chapter 12, some of those who were in Egypt decided to join Israel. When the Israelites left in the Exodus, it wasn't just Jews who left, it was a whole group of people who said, we want to be with them, not them. Because there's the punishment in the Exodus. God's plagues against Egypt go against one of the gods of Egypt. There is a god of the Nile. There is a god of the frogs. There is a god of the flies. There is a god of the sun. Every plague that happens is God saying to Egypt, I'm in charge. Your god's not in charge. And the last god of Egypt is Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh doesn't even have power over his own heart. God is the one in charge. And in his judgment against Egypt, some of those there join with Israel. We see this throughout Revelation. In his judgment against the world, which is his vindication of the church, 
there is still this prayer that the world will see, the world will hear, the world will repent. So what is the song of Moses and the Lamb that these 144,000 sing? It is the song that all the nations will see the righteous acts of God. We want all the nations to come in. The judgment of God is never absent the gospel. The judgment of God is never absent the gospel. Now, right from this, we have an incredible ceremony. Now, when Jesus opened the seals, it was an incredibly cool moment, but it didn't have, it, it didn't have his pomp and circumstance that we're going to see here. When, when there were seven trumpets, it was amazing. It was terrifying. But suddenly, we have an entire chapter dedicated to the pomp and circumstance of the bowls of wrath. And the best way I can illustrate why is this. Some of you weren't here on the first day, and so I, I've got to just make sure you know this. That is my wife over there, seated on the front row, dressed in voo gear. That's my wife. My wife, I mentioned to her on the first day yesterday, I was standing and she was talking to me. Someone was standing behind her, and I realized this person wanted to talk to me. I said, no, it's okay. This is just my wife. You, you can come around and talk to me. My wife, I meant that in a good way. My wife. I met my wife my very first Sunday in Southern California many years ago when I had just moved there. I was at a church, Assembly of God Church, my first Sunday in L.A. I don't know anyone in Southern California. I'm talking to some people in the foyer, getting to know them, and someone mentions, where did you go to college? I say, I went to Evangel. And they're like, oh, we have a young woman who works in our office who went to Evangel. I said, who? And they point out my wife who's surrounded by a bunch of other people having a conversation. And when I saw her, my first thought was, I should meet her. <laughs> I don't know anyone in L.A. She went to my college. Let's meet. And I remember walking over to her. She's surrounded by some other girls. The way my wife tells it is she said, I made such a beeline to her, I effectively dismissed all the other women. <laughs> and they walked away, and I'm like, hi, I want to meet you. In fact, apparently I came on so strong that in the middle of the conversation, my wife starts backing up, which I recognized, and I was mature enough to know that's the universal sign for ending this conversation. So I said, hey, nice to meet you, so, so, you know, and then we went on. What happened is I attend that church for a few months. They then bring me on staff. I'm now the singles pastor. So if you're single, I'm your pastor. So I won't date anyone in the church, right? Because I can't pastor you and try to date you at the same time. So my wife and I remained friends for eight years before she went to the mission field and suddenly she's not in my church anymore. <laughs> and suddenly we start dating online. Now here's the thing. I noticed her. Other people said, oh, there's just this one woman here. I noticed her. When I saw her, I still remember the first time I saw her. I remember what she was wearing. I remember where she was standing in the foyer. I remember thinking, I need to meet that person. Twelve years from that day, we got married. There was pomp and circumstance. And when the music started and those doors opened and my wife walked out in the most beautiful wedding dress I have still ever seen to this day, all of you women in here who are married, my wife's dress was prettier than your dress. It is the most beautiful wedding dress I have ever seen. She comes out 
everyone in that church stands up. They all turn. They all look at her the way I first saw her 12 years ago. And I felt like saying, see, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> the pomp and the circumstance direct our attention to what we need to see. Now, I'm not trying to compare my wedding to God's bowls of wrath. Let's be clear on that. But there is pomp and circumstance with the angels who make a spectacle of receiving these bowls. What do the bowls really compare to? They really compare to this. Jesus, on the night he is betrayed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, goes to the Father, having already said to the disciples, this is the night. There's going to be a new covenant in my blood. He goes to the Father and he says, if there's any way out of this, I'm all ears. Let this cup pass from me. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the very thing here, the cup that is filled with the wrath of God. What you're going to see throughout this passage, which is the final major series of judgments, this is where it's complete. We've gone from a fourth to a third, now it's going to be a whole. Is that the wrath that Jesus received on our behalf is the way that God wants to judge the world. God wants to judge the world through Christ. Christ died in our place. Christ bore our sins. Christ took on that wrath so that we could be saved. Why would God do that? Because evil has to be accounted for. There can be no stable order in the creation God created without calling out evil and ending it. But Jesus did that for us. But now we have a world that has consistently rejected what God has done in Christ. And so now we see bowls of wrath. The angels come, they pour these out on the world, and these bowls of wrath immediately remind us of the plagues of Egypt. Here's the song of Moses. Here's that prayer for the nations. The first plagues bring out skin sores, and they turn water into blood. And then we stop. And the angel of the waters says, this is justice. Because they have killed your saints. They have spilled the blood of God's people. Now it's their turn to drink blood. Then we have the fourth plague, which leads to scorching sun. The fifth plague, which brings darkness to the earth. And it specifically says, on what? On the kingdom of the beast. When God punishes, who's he trying to show up? He's showing up the object of our worship so that we could know to worship him. Even in punishment, God is still calling us. But we're told that the people refused to acknowledge God's love. They cursed God. They did not repent. Every time it says in Revelation they did not repent, what that implies is they could have. They did not repent. There are some people, when they finally see that what they worship is killing them, will double down on the worship of that very thing. Because that's human hearts. There are some people who will do anything in this world rather than turn to God. 
They would rather a mountain fall on them than face the glory of the Lord. Finally, we have a sixth bowl that dries up the Euphrates. What is the Euphrates? It's the major river that separates Rome from the Parthian Empire. The idea was always this is the river that keeps the enemy from coming in. Now we see this river drying up. Now we see the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon! Armageddon. How many have heard of Armageddon? Even though it's misspelled on the screen. How many have heard of Armageddon? I mean, you have to look. I saw it this morning. It's misspelled. Armageddon. Armageddon here in the Bible is a Hebrew name. Har Megiddo. It means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo, Megiddo, whatever you say. Don't, don't ever trust me for pronunciation, by the way. The mountain of Megiddo. If you actually go to Megiddo in Israel, because it's a real place. It's a place where they had numerous battles. It's a place where God's people have been attacked and they have won victory over God's enemies. But if you ever go, what you're going to notice is it's not a mountain. It's actually a valley. It's actually a plain. And yet here, John pictures it as a mountain. And you think to yourself, what is going on? And one clue for me is another place where we find this in Scripture is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, that there will be weeping in Megiddo. And what's the context? Because they will look upon the one they have pierced. And there will be weeping in Jerusalem like on the plains of Megiddo. In other words, it's a messianic prophecy of Jesus. And in these judgments, we're constantly reminded of the sacrifice of Christ, of the sacrifice of Christ, of the sacrifice of Christ. The seventh bowl is poured out, and suddenly we have a voice that says, it is finished. Where have we heard that before? Jesus on the cross. The point I want to try and make is simply this. The same thing that's said of Jesus, God's justice is done, is being said again at this moment. The world has a choice. Either receives God's judgment through Christ or receive God's judgment without Christ. The judgment has to come because God created the world and he owes it to the world to make things right. The judgment has to come. It'll either come with Christ or it's going to come without Christ. The world in this passage has chosen without Christ. And so it is finished. God's judgment that we see from this will increase. The judgment of the trumpets are partial, but the judgment of the bowls is full. We've seen us move from a fourth to a third. Now the bowls affect 100%. We still understand, though, that even in this escalation, why does God escalate judgment? Why doesn't God just bring the end now? And part of the answer is this, because he's still giving time for repentance. God's judgments, even in our lifetime, when we see something as the God's judgment of God, it is not God's final judgment until the judgment is final. He still gives us time for repentance. The church can look at every judgment of God in this world and say, here's another opportunity for the gospel. Here's another opportunity for the gospel. The judgments increase. The judgments lead to more rebellion. 
We live in a world where people will be judged and they'll double down on the rejection. Understand this, the rejection of Christ in this world is not the fault of the church. Now, you know, sometimes the church does a bad job in witnessing. If they don't understand our witness, that can be the fault of the church. But the rejection of our witness is not the fault of the church. If there are people in your community that will not hear about Jesus, that is not on you. What's on you is that they have heard. What's not on you is how they respond. The world that's being judged, that has opportunity, will many times double down. But rejecting God's judgment on the cross means receiving God's judgment at the end. If we ignore the sacrifice of Christ, we're going to have to hear another, it is finished. Okay, how many know this is really heavy? So can I tell you a joke? I asked my wife last night if I could tell this joke, and she gave me a look. And because I don't know what that look means, here's the joke. So, a pastor had a friend who was an evangelist that he went to hear one day. And one day as he's listening to his friend the evangelist preach, the evangelist uh, starts losing the crowd. And so the evangelist stops in the very middle of his message and he just says, folks, I have a confession to make. The best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. <gasps> and the whole church just gasped and they looked up and the evangelist then quickly said, my mother. And everyone laughed and they clapped and the pastor thought, man, that is great i got to try that the next time I'm losing my church. So on a Sunday, he's preaching. It's a little warm. He notices that the church is starting to get a little listless and drift off. Drift off. He decides, now's the time, now's the time. So right in the middle of the message, he stands up and he says, Folks, I have a confession to make. The best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. <gasps> the whole church gasps. Now, here's the problem. He hadn't run that by his wife yet. She didn't know that this line was coming. She's hearing it for the first time. She is a fiery woman. She's sitting in the back. She stands up and starts making her way to the pulpit. Pastor Denny, like the ghost of David Wilkerson, she is making her way to that pulpit. The pastor gets flustered. He sees his wife coming. He repeats himself again, and he says, Folks, the best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife, and if you just give me a moment, I'll try to remember who she is. <laughs> when we come to Revelation 17, we come to the story of another woman. We come to the story of another woman. Revelation 17 he sees, and I'm going to begin reading here, then the angel carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. Verse 3. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. 
So what we see happening in Revelation is we have these series of escalating judgments because Jesus is worthy to unfold history. And as they escalate and come, we have constant stops to give us a picture of the scene. Here's what's going on. Here's what the dragon's doing. Here's what the beast is doing. Here's what the 144,000 is doing. We've just been told that Babylon in the seventh bowl is now being destroyed. So now let's stop and let's tell you a little bit about Babylon. Let's tell you who she is. He sees a picture of a woman dressed in gold riding on the very beast that was described earlier. And she is drunk, and what she's drinking is the blood of God's people. This is a city, Babylon, pictured as a prostitute. Why? One reason is because everyone has been seduced by her. Everyone has been seduced by her. He says that I was shocked when I saw her, and without even asking, the angel says to me, let me tell you what this means. By the way, I love that in Revelation, from time to time, it stops and says, okay, here's all the symbolism, guys. The beast is the beast of the earlier passage. It says the one that would come, would die, and then come back. This parody of Jesus. The seven heads are seven hills, but also seven kings. The ten horns are ten other kings who receive power with the beast in order to support the beast and wage war against the lamb. And the waters on which she sets are again the peoples, nations, multitudes, and tongues from the same group that we saw earlier worshiping around God's throne. And you say to yourself, what does this mean? What is going on? Well, number one, anytime you describe a city as setting on seven hills, everyone knew you were talking about Rome because that's how Rome was described. If I say to you, I'm going to talk to you about a country, I'm not going to tell you the name of the country, but it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. What country do you think I'm talking about? Everyone knows what you mean when you say seven hills. It's not a coded message, right? Everyone knows what you mean. Rome has been called Babylon because Babylon was the place that God's people found themselves in exile. Rome is the place where they're currently being persecuted. The plagues represent Egypt because Egypt was the place that held God's people in slavery. And Babel, which is also represented here by Babylon, was the place that a city first took a stand against God. All of these represent systems of communities that take a stand against God. You say to yourself, well, what about the seven kings? What about the ten kings? How do we understand that? And the best answer I can give you may go all the way back to 666. I told you I don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't. If I ever say I do, I'm trying to sell you something. I don't. But 666, if it means anything besides that, and it probably does because John says, let the reader understand, was what's sometimes known as a gematra. It's a word that if you uh, take a name, and of course in Rome, letters could also be numbers, add them together, you could actually get a number. You know, there was this famous uh, graffiti in Rome where a guy was trying to talk about who he loves, and he says, the woman that I love is 514. What he means is, that's, that's the number of her name. Now, it's easy if you know the name in advance to get the number. It's a lot harder if you only have the number to get the name. Because there's a lot of names that add up to the same number. But a lot of scholars believe that the name that may be implied here is simply the name Nero. And let me explain why. 
Nero was the first persecutor of the church that was a Roman emperor. Nero was known for taking Christians, and this isn't a Christian account, this is a secular account from a Roman historian at the time, tying them to posts, putting tar on them, and setting them on fire. Why would Nero do this? To light his parties at night. You go to a party at Nero's house, and it was an event. Nero was killed by the Roman army because he was so brutal. The Romans turned against him. But in the light of his death, there was no clear successor. It led to civil war in Rome, and there was a rumor that spread among the populace, among the Romans who had never experienced Nero's cruelty because you had to be at the party to see it. And they said, when Nero was here, you know what? We were okay. When Nero was here, we weren't in civil war. When Nero was here, there was peace. And the word started spreading around that one day Nero was going to return and he was going to set things right. But when Christians heard Nero was going to return, all they remember is being tied to a post and set on fire. Who does it sound like we're waiting for someone to return? Satan is not a creator, he's always a cheap imitator. He's not a creator, he's just a cheap imitator. So John may be saying, and he's not saying literally it's the return of Nero. Nero was dead, but there will be coming one like Nero. There will be coming another figure that the public supports who wants to kill us. If you count the seven kings, there's one way of doing it, you get Nero. You count the ten kings, it's the client states around Rome. It's his way of saying there is a world system where there is someone in charge that has the power to attack and persecute Christians and the whole world is propping him up. How many know every persecutor of the church was only able to do it because there were other people propping them up? How many know Hitler couldn't have been Hitler if he didn't have people propping him up? Give me any dictator, give me any antichrist. And there was a group of people in their court that were making it possible for them to succeed. This is Babylon. Sometimes we see examples of Babylon in little ways. I once had a member of my church uh, back in Missouri when I was a pastor there who told me his story. He was retired. He said that for years I worked for the, one of the major, two major defense contractors in our country at the time. This was one of the major ones. He said, my job was to sell the Pentagon on the secret things we were creating, like, you know, the Blackbird and things like that. He said, I would actually have the plans with me. I would always travel under assumed names. I would always go to the Pentagon, and I would meet with the colonels and generals. That was, that was my target, and I would take them out. And he said, and I was very successful at this. In fact, his nickname was Good Time Wes. Because Good Time Wes would always take him to a restaurant, then he'd take him to a strip club, then he'd pay the girls a little something extra to make sure that they had a really good time. And he said, I made sale after sale after sale, because sometimes that is how things work. How many understand that? That is how things work. And he said, but then my wife left me because I had been gone too long from my family. Too many James Bond adventures. And he said that I found another wife. We got married. 
and both of us wanting to make this marriage work decided to go to church. And for the first time in my life, in my late 40s, I gave my heart to the Lord. And when I gave my heart to the Lord, good time Wes had to die. He said, I couldn't do the things at my job I was doing anymore. He said, so I would go and I would find the best steakhouse in town and I would take the general out to the steakhouse and I would make sure the meal was perfect, everything was great, and then it was done and the general said, that's been wonderful, what are we going to do next? And I would say, well, I'm going home to my wife. And I started to lose sale after sale after sale. And eventually the company let me go. And I said to him, so you gave your life to Jesus, and then you lost your job. I said, how did that make you feel? He said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. How many you know we live in a world where many times what the world requires for us to succeed is to be unfaithful to Jesus? The way the world actually works many times smells like Babylon. It smells like Babylon. And the call of the church is to remain faithful. We're told here in this passage, come out of Babylon, my people, come out. It doesn't mean everyone leave the city, because sometimes you can't. What it means is, don't be one of the people who props this up. Don't be one of the people who gives your support to this. Don't be one of the people who makes it possible that this thing continues. Because what happens in the story? God judges Babylon. And one hour it says, everything falls apart. And then we get a series of cries from all the people who had supported Babylon. The cries of the kings who said, no longer do we have someone to seduce us. Babylon has fallen. The cries of the merchants who say, no longer is anyone going to buy our fancy goods, our linens, our scarlets, our gold, our jewels. And how does the line end? And our human slaves. Because how many of you know Babylon might have some good things going for it, but there's always somebody that pays a price. There's always somebody that pays a price. The sailors, the ship owners, they cry out because everyone has lost their business. Everyone has lost their security. And one of the lessons we see from that is simply this. As Christians, the warning is, don't ever, ever, Tie yourself into something that when God brings it down, you're not going to be brought down with it. God will always bring down what's unjust. God will always bring down what's unjust. I once had a, a guy uh, trying to sell me at my church on a, a 401k plan. And he said, you know, we have this great plan and it's going to be wonderful. He said, the, the great thing about this plan is this plan is investing in companies that have no connection to any known form of sin. And I'm like, that is an amazing line. No known form of sin whatsoever. He said, no. I said, so you know that none of these companies have sweatshops anywhere in the world? He goes, well, no, I don't know that. 
So you know that these companies don't employ any labor that could be like slave labor, though we call it something else. No, no, I, I don't know anything about that. So you know that these companies aren't doing so. He goes, no, no. And I finally said, what do you mean by known forms of sin? He said, well, they don't sell tobacco and alcohol. I said, that's awesome. But that's not every known form of sin. Don't ever attach yourself, Christian, to anything that God has to bring down. That God has to bring down. Because when you do, you know that there is a time limit on that thing for you. What did we say before? God is the center. Good, some of you weren't here. God is the center. Jesus is the key. And this world is not our this world is not our security. That's the lesson that we're getting here. After the horrible, horrible sounds of destruction, after the people's cries, we get a beautiful, beautiful sound of worship in heaven because now God has brought justice to his people. Now heaven rejoices louder than the cries of the powerful because the work of Satan has been to corrupt creation and to resist redemption, even by killing the redeemed. And the angel says to John the Revelator, I want to invite you now to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's what we find. There are two women. One is a prostitute. The other is a bride. There are two lords. One died on the cross for our sins. The other liked to burn people for his parties. Which side are you going to be on? Which side are you going to be on? John falls down at this, and he does the thing that I love he does because it was the wrong thing, but it's also the wrong thing I do. How many of you at this moment, you have seen the fall of Babylon? You have seen the vindication of the church? You have just been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? How many of you think you might feel a little overwhelmed? How many of you think at that moment you might do what John did? And he said, and I fell down to worship the angel who invited me. And the angel says, stand up. Worship God alone. I'm just a servant like you. Here's at the heart of it. We never make bad things the objects of our worship. We always make good things the objects of our worship. The temptation towards idolatry is not to worship the thing that disgusts us. It's to worship the thing that's great. How many know your family is awesome? And that could become your idol. Ministry is a calling. And that could become your idol. America is a blessing. And that could become your idol. Angels are God's messengers. And they could become your idol. That's how the enemy works. He works by offering us what's good to get us away from what's God. He offers us what's good to get us away from what's God. So we see here that God's judgment will save. God will judge the world system that destroys. He will judge those who support that system. Never base your security on that which God will one day bring down but his judgment saves those the system destroys. And finally, we come to our last passage, and I'm going to read this very quickly. 
chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heavens were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the judgments began and you had the opening of the first seal, it was a rider on a white horse set to conquer. When the judgments end, we see Jesus make his appearance riding on a white horse. The first white horse represented the conquerors that lead to war, but this white horse is holding the rider whose robe is already dipped in blood. Here's the thing, the battle hasn't started yet. Whose blood is it? It's his. He conquers a very different way. He died for us. I'm going to argue again and again through this part of Revelation. We are constantly reminded of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. That is meant to be the judgment of God. Not this. Jesus comes. Jesus judges. The beast and the kings gather together to wage war against him. But they're captured. And what we're told here, and this is important... He will rule with the iron scepter. He treads the wine press. The sword comes out of his mouth. By the way, I, you know, this is the final battle, and yet in this battle, there's not really a description of the battle because it's not really a battle. It's just judgment. And the army that comes behind him, his saints, how are they dressed? They're dressed in fine linen. And I'm going to tell you, if that's a soldier, that's really embarrassing to show up for in a battle. You want to show up in something that's at least camouflaged, hopefully bulletproof. But the reason they ride behind him wearing fine linen and not armor is because they're not there to fight. They're not dressed like soldiers. They're dressed like worshipers. The only one who fights is Jesus. God's judgment belongs to Jesus. It's Jesus who will bring justice to the whole world. It's Jesus who will rule above every power. And it's Jesus who will defeat every enemy of God. Church, it is not our job to destroy the world. It's our job to share the gospel. It's our job to let the world know they've already been judged. And if they will just reach out to Christ, they can experience the salvation that God offers. When it comes time for the end, it's Jesus who will take care of that. Our job is to represent the one whose robe is dipped in his own blood. The one who died to save. So, I said before, I'm flying over the book of Revelation. I can't land everywhere. Yesterday, I went through the beast, and I didn't even have time to get to 666. So, you know we're flying over. What do I want you to get out of this? Here's the main thing. I'm stopping and pointing out landmarks. That's all I can do. Here's a landmark. Here's a landmark. Here's a landmark. 
What I want you to get out of this is not that you understand what every symbol means or you're able to answer every the question about how it fits in chronology. How do we map this onto history? I want you to walk away from this feeling what the church was meant to feel when they read it. I want you to feel the worship of God. God is in charge. God will vindicate. I want you to feel the sense of being ready for his judgment. And I want you to feel God's concern for the world. Why is Revelation so many chapters? Because that's how much time God is giving people to repent. God's concern is for the world. Jesus is God's answer. And as a church, Jesus is our mission. I'm going to invite our worship team here. I'm going to close in prayer. And I just want to pray this again. If there's anyone here who says, I'm not even a follower of Christ. I'm not someone who follows Jesus. I want you to pray with me to invite Jesus into your life. The judgment of God is coming. But if you turn to Christ, you're receiving the salvation that he offers. God will forgive your sins now. Now you can become the person God has called you to be. I want to pray for us as a church. I want us to remember that our mission is always Jesus. It's always who he is and what he has done. We can trust God to take care of what we can't control. We can trust God to take care of beasts and dragons. Our job is to share his word with the nations. So we're going to close in prayer and then another act of worship because revelation is all about worship. Let's pray. If you are someone who doesn't know the Lord, I just want you to pray this prayer with me and say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that because Jesus died on the cross that I can be forgiven because he was a sacrifice for my sin. I believe that if I declare him my Lord and I commit myself to God, that I'll belong to you and I will be saved. God, I want to belong to your people. I don't want to belong to anyone else. I pray this in Jesus' name.